All right, good evening, everyone. I'm uh, Dan Nordby. I practice in the Tallahassee office of Schutz and Bowen, and it's my pleasure to invite everyone to, to be here for our first substantive panel discussion of the 2020 Florida Chapters Conference on revisiting the Anti-Federalists. We have a tremendous panel to uh, present a variety of perspectives to you today. Uh, I'd like to introduce our moderator, who will then introduce the panelists. This panel will be moderated by Judge Trevor McFadden, uh, who we have the pleasure of having with us here today. Judge McFadden was appointed to the United States District Court for the District of Columbia in 2017. He received his BA from Wheaton College and his JD from the University of Virginia School of Law, where he was an editor for the Virginia Law Review. Following graduation from law school, Judge McFadden clerked for Judge Colleton on the United States Court of Appeal for the Eighth Circuit. He then joined the United States Department of Justice, where he served as counsel to the Deputy Attorney General and as Assistant U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia. Judge McFadden subsequently became a partner at Baker and McKenzie in Washington, D.C. After four years in private practice, Judge McFadden returned to the U.S. Department of Justice, where he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General and acted as the second in command of the department's criminal division. As Deputy Assistant Attorney General, Judge uh, McFadden managed the division's fraud and appellate sections. Judge McFadden also has extensive experience in law enforcement, serving as an officer with the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department, and as a deputy sheriff in Madison County, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Judge Trevor McFadden. Thanks so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you all today. Um, we are going to be talking about the Anti-Federalists, and just as a note of clarification, we're, we're not referring to those dark money groups that are seeking uh, to take down the federal society from the left. Um, today, the Constitution is, is revered uh, alongside the Ten Commandments, I think it would be safe to say, up in DC where I'm from, they're really revered well above the Ten Commandments. Um, but at the time of the ratification, they were hotly debated, quite controversial. Um, there was a group uh, per, that uh, were their proponents, their advocates, uh, called the Federalists. Uh, three in particular, Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay, uh, wrote a series of 85 essays in the New York papers at the time that were widely re uh, circulated, the Federalist papers. Uh, they were incredibly influential in that debate, and the Federalist papers continue to be influential today. They've been cited over 600 times by the Supreme Court. 500 of those 600 times were just within the last 70 years, and over half of those 600 citations are just from the last 20 years. Uh, and it's not just at the Supreme Court level. Uh, I had a case last year where the House of Representatives was uh, challenging the administration's funding for the border wall in my court, and both the uh, House and the administration uh, heavily relied on the Federalist Papers in their briefing. Um, but the Federalist Papers were not written in a vacuum. In many ways, they were written as a trying to refute arguments raised against the Constitution by a group of people who became known as the Anti-Federalists. Uh, the Anti-Federalists, though, have in many ways been forgotten today uh, in, in modern legal uh, discourse. What we're hoping to do today with this panel is to 
go back to that debate and, and uh, reconsider whether the anti-federalists in fact have something important to teach us today. We've got a great panel to do that. Um, I'm gonna uh, start with uh, Judge Andy Oldham there in the middle, who is, is really one of the main reasons we are having this conversation today. Um, he uh, teaches a class on the anti-federalists at the University of Virginia School of Law. He regularly uh, speaks on the anti-federalists. In fact, just last week, he keynoted an address at the Federal Society Western Chapters Conference at the Reagan Library on the anti-federalists. He's also written a law review article on them. Um, in his day job, uh, Judge Oldham is a uh, judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He was the youngest federal judge in the country when he was appointed. He's also a former general counsel and former deputy uh, solicitor general in the state of Texas. Judge Oldham clerked for Justice Alito in the United States Supreme Court and Judge Sintel on the DC Circuit. He has his BA from the University of Virginia with highest honors, an MPhil from the Cambridge University, I'm not quite sure what an MPhil is, but it sounds very fancy. And he has his JD magnum cum laude from Harvard Law School. At the end, we have Professor John Baker. He is a uh, expert in founding era and, and particularly uh, studies and speaks on the Federalists. Uh, we have him here to help balance out Judge, Judge Oldham. Um, professor Baker is currently a visiting professor at the Georgetown University of School of Law. Previously, he was the Dale E. Bennett Professor of Law at Louisiana State University Law School, a visiting fellow at Oriel College, University of Oxford, and he's taught at a number of other impressive schools, both domestically and internationally. Professor Baker specializes in constitutional law with a focus on federalism and separation of powers, criminal law, anti-terrorism law, international law, healthcare law, mediation, and comparative law. Frankly, Professor, I should have just said what you don't specialize in and it would have been shorter. It's the same thing, no matter what the course is. <laughs> <laughs> um, Professor Baker has written uh, uh, widely. He's published in the Hall's Criminal Law, Cases and Materials, An Introduction to the Law of the United States, The Intelligent Intelligence Edge, Edge, and he's had various editorials in the Wall Street Journal. He's argued two cases in front of the United States Supreme Court and uh, previously taught courses on separation of powers with uh, the late Justice Scalia. Professor Baker has his Juris Doctor with honors from the University of Michigan School of Law, his BA magnum cum laude from the University of Dallas, and his PhD in political thought from the University of London. And then uh, to my immediate left, uh, Dr. Michelle Conmiller. Um, she's our historian and here to keep uh, Judge Oldham and Professor uh, Baker honest. Um, professor uh, Conmiller is a professor of constitutional law and theory at the Old Dominion University. Um, she focuses on the American founding and judiciary. She uh, studies ancient political thought and the role of moderation in the health of political and legal societies. Dr. Conmiller is also an author. She recently wrote a book, Homer's Hero, uh, Human Excellence in the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, a book of virtues of ancient heroes. And she's currently working on a book about Atticus Finch. Uh, she's written on the history of political thought and jurisprudence from Plato to Shakespeare to the natural law theory of Martin Luther King. 
Previously, she taught at the Department of Leadership in American Studies at Christopher Newport University. She has her doctorate and her Juris Doctorate from the Notre Dame University. Her students say of her, you didn't know I was gonna say this, did you? <laughs> Wait till you hear it. Um, if you want an easy class, Dr. K is not for you. But if you wanna actually learn and become a better student, I can think of no one better. Her students say that she's passionate, informative, and knowledgeable. She's a wonderful professor. I would absolutely take her class again. So we've got a great panel here uh, for you today. Um, so Judge Oldham recently wrote an en banc opinion for the full Fifth Circuit in which he uh, quoted the Anti-Federalists, cited them in, in a habeas case, I, I believe, with a, a misunderstood uh, murderer in uh, the Fifth Circuit where he, he denied habeas. Um, his, uh, one of his colleagues, though, wrote in dissent, uh, I had thought the Anti-Federalists lost. And doesn't he have a point, Judge Oldham? Um, why should we care about what the Anti-Federalists have to say today? Well, thank you for the wonderful introduction. It's an honor to be here um, and to be on this distinguished panel. Um, let me give you three reasons. First, to, um, to take the point about um, what the, the, the Anti-Federalists lost, which is the most obvious rhetorical critique as to why we, you know, why we should not be even thinking about the Anti-Federalists. It's not at all obvious that they lost. In fact, um, if you ask just a normal educated attorney anywhere in the United States to name something, name a right that is protected by the Constitution or name anything in the Constitution, they will almost always give you something out of the Bill of Rights. They might say the First Amendment, something about the freedom of religion, something about the freedom of speech. In Texas, they would often say the right to keep and bear arms, right, that comes from the Bill of Rights. And we, don't, we wouldn't have a Bill of Rights but for the objections of the Anti-Federalists. So in many ways, those, those objections prevailed, carried the day, and are now part of our sacred founding um, constitutional document. So that's the most obvious reason. But I think there's two additional reasons that also merit mention at the outset of the panel. I think the principal reason that the Anti-Federalists matter is because the Federalists matter. I remember when I first got to law school and I joined the Federalist Society, I picked up what is now a very dog-eared, highly highlighted and annotated version of Clinton Rossiter's The Federalist Papers. And I read it and I reread it and I read it all the time. And it's very difficult to understand The Federalist Papers if you don't read the Anti-Federalist Papers. As Judge McFadden noted briefly in the introduction, the Anti-Federalists were published first. The Federalist was largely a response to what the Anti-Federalists had to say about the constitutional document. The framers signed the Constitution in Philadelphia on September 17, 1787. Just a few weeks later, the first paper about it is Sentinel, Sentinel 1, which is an objection largely about the fact that it's missing a Bill of Rights, published before Federalist 1 or any of the other Federalist papers were published. So trying to read the Federalist papers, which especially at a Federalist Society event, I'm sure many in the room have read at least one, if not all of the Federalist papers, Trying to read the Federalist Papers without reading the Anti-Federalist Papers is like a judge trying to decide a case by reading only the appellee's brief or only the red brief, ignoring the blue brief or the appellant's brief altogether. You would agree that the second makes no sense, and I would submit to you that the first makes no sense either. So that's, a principle, that's the second reason. And then the third reason, and this is the one that I think is really, especially for a conference where we're gonna talk about originalism, this is the one that I think is really persuasive, which is when I was in law school, 
one of my professors, John Manning, was very fond of saying that the Federalist Papers are also irrelevant. And his argument was, this is merely propaganda, and it's anonymous propaganda at best, so it doesn't tell you anything about what the Constitution means. And that argument had some purchase at a time when we thought about originalism as meaning the original intent of the actual people, the 55 people who were in Philadelphia signing the Constitution. But of course, that's not what we think about when we talk about originalism today. Today, we're talking about the original public meaning of the words drafted on that document in 1787 and ratified by the people in 1789. And if you want to talk about the original public meaning of the words, you have to read all of the material written about the words and what they meant at the time in the late 18th century. And if that is the enterprise, if the enterprise is to debate and understand the original public meaning of those words, the anti-federalists are just as relevant as the federalists, which are just as relevant as any other source published at the time debating the meaning. Um, and that is the true originalist enterprise, and that's why the anti-federalists would matter. Dr. Baker, I wonder if you could uh, respond to that, and particularly this idea that, you know, gee, the Bill of Rights are really important today. Are the Bill of are, are the Anti-Federalists really are our key to understanding the Bill of Rights? Well, as some of you know, maybe many of you know, when the Federalist Society was formed, there were those uh, who wanted it to be called or should be called the Anti-Federalist Society mm -hmm. because. The reality is that most conservatives in the United States are much closer to the Anti-Federalists than they were to the Federalists. Unfortunately, that has left the left to, to gather the uh, momentum for centralizing power. That is, there's been a vacuum on all of this. And in one sense, Judge, the Anti-Federalists won by taking over the Federalists, to say. <laughs> But there's a big misunderstanding among most conservatives. Don't ever let yourself be called a state's writer. That's different. The convention was called and the Federalist Papers is all about limiting and balancing the powers of the states, the powers of the federal government, and the powers within the federal government. As Justice Scalia said regarding the Anti-Federalists, if you believe that what sets us apart and gives us our freedom is a Bill of Rights, he would say, quote, you're crazy. He said that many, many times. Why? Because all, he would say, all the tin horn dictators in the world, <laughs> the first thing they do is to draft a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is the icing on the cake because it all depends on the independence of the judiciary. Without that, Bill of Rights means nothing. Moreover, the Bill of Rights wasn't much necessary at the federal level until the administrative state. You go back and look at the number of Bill of Rights questions regarding Congress, because back then, members of Congress really did know and care about and speak about the Constitution, and they would debate these things in Congress. Actually, the structure, which is what it's all about, was designed to work. And unfortunately, the Federalist is not well understood in the Federalist Society. You're one of the rare ones who in law school actually read the Federalist Papers. And you're absolutely right. You have to read it as a de debate because both sides enlighten the others. But more importantly, what they did was to give us the example 
of what civic debate should be long before television, radio, and the internet, which make it very difficult. Just one last question or point about the anonymity. It wasn't that they were hiding themselves. It was that they were forcing the other side, whichever the other side was, because both sides use pseudonyms, to meet the argument and not use ad hominem attacks on the other. In other words, it was a culture of reasoned debate. And that is exactly what the Federalist Society has promoted all these many years since its founding. And it has become very rare that any group of highly interested people in government and politics are willing to sit down and have reasoned debate. Thank you, Dr. Baker. Um, Professor Kunmiller, um, as Judge Oldham said, uh, you know, D Dean Manning at Harvard Law School has kind of written off the, the Federalist Papers and presumably the Anti-Federalists as well as, as propaganda. Is, is, is that fair looking at, at the debate at the time and, and how that, would that have properly reflected what, uh, how it was seen uh, by, by the average American uh, when the Constitution was being ratified? I don't think that calling it propaganda is fair at all. I think you go back to the fact, um, like Dr. Baker said, that we had a culture of reason debate. Um, and in debate, people take positions, um, right? But we all know the difference between what passes the laugh test in court and what doesn't. And we all know when we're having a rational conversation about something and when we're serving as advocates rationally, but pushing our side of the argument. Um, and I, I think that they were both pushing their side of the argument a little bit, both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, but that they were doing so in a, in a forum where people knew the difference between rational debate and non-rational debate, and only rational debate was tolerated with a few eloquent flourishes that frankly make them a lot of fun to read. Um, but I, I think this comes back to then why they are useful at this time, and I think perhaps um, why those of us who have uh, for a long time been trying to uh, make the argument for limited government need to really keep our eye on the ball with the anti-federalists. And that is that, um, well, think about it. So the, the federalists, once the convention is over and they're defending the Constitution, they're saying, please ratify this document. And, and one problematic aspect of the document is that it gives a lot of power to the federal government. So in their arguments, um, if they are erring on one side in that raising debate, they're erring on the side of arguing for how this power actually is limited. That makes them very good citation sources for those who are doing public meaning arguments who want to make the case for how um, federal power is limited. The anti-federalists, on the other hand, are you know, they're being rational, but they're taking things like the necessary and proper clause, um, the taxing powers, um, the power of the executive, and they are painting a very different but not irrational picture of how broadly those can be construed. Uh, it seems to me that you can make a very good argument that between the two of those, the anti-federalists and the federalists, you kind of have all of the tenable positions one could take on original public meaning of those terms, um, which tells me that if I were a smart litigant right now, or a smart person in politics, and I wanted to argue public meaning against those who want to limit government power, I'd be reading my anti-federalists, and that means we do too. Um, Dr. Kunmiller, I've got a, another question for you. At, at 
the time, really both sides had some pretty dire predictions about what might happen if if the voters didn't swing behind them. Uh, the, the, uh, the Federalists really suggested that the union, union was either going to crumble because uh, internally or it was going to be attacked and be unable to defend itself if the Constitution was not ratified. Uh, what did the anti-Federalists accurately predict about the state of America's polity today? And do you think this was inevitable at the time, or are there subsequent uh, independent causes that, that led to the state of affairs? So if, if anyone wants a, to get a, a quick uh, feel for the answer to this question, I'd recommend Brutus one. Um, so clearly they, they predicted that power would beget power. They predicted that the federal government would grow, that it would eclipse the power of the state governments, um, that the provisions of the Constitution would over time be interpreted as expansively as possible. Um, and then some of their more extreme predictions seem to be saying that the state governments will become a complete creatures of the federal government. And, and, and there, the predictions, you know, the arguments over whether they were right or not, it kind of depends on how extreme an anti-federalist you're reading at the moment and how you want to parse our current condition. Um, so, you know, the first thing that they clearly got right was that this government would grow and it would grow in power. I mean, even James Madison seems a little bit shocked by how quickly it grew in power in the years uh, immediately after ratification. But, um, and that a lot of that has to do with the necessary and proper clause and the taxing powers. Um, I think then if you ask, well, what are the causes of that growth? Are the causes of that growth uh, the structure of the Constitution itself? Or is it something we did wrong running the Constitution? In other words, just because you're in a car crash doesn't mean the car screwed up, it might be the driver. Um, that question is really complex because you have to ask yourself, is the nature of the driver changed by the car? So in other words, the people running our Constitution in the 20th century, um, were they affected by the culture that was created by the Constitution they'd already been living under for a hundred years? Um, and that, so that's, that's really, really complex. But, you know, to give you an idea of how they come off as, as just really spot on, they say, look, you can't, you cannot, through a Republican form of government, govern a group of people that are this dissimilar to one another um, with this few number of representatives and have your national government adequately represent the people. And because of that, you're going to have to rule the people despotically, um, which means you will do one of two things to them. You will either cause them to homogenize, take a look at our education curriculum today, or um, they will fight back and you will have a civil war. Um, which then that kind of gets to the chicken and the egg question because of course it's partially because of the Civil War, because we did not have a cohesive enough culture, um, that we get the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Um, so, <laughs> Judge Oldham, uh, what, what, when you read the Anti-Federalists, what do you see that it just seems incredibly prescient today? Well, it's, it's true that there are an enormous number of predictions um, in the Anti-Federalist papers, and it's one of the things that makes them incredibly interesting to read. I, I would agree um, with Professor Kuhnmuller that, you, that Brutus I is a wonderful place to start um, in terms of understanding the basics of Anti-Federalist thought. Um, and they, they have a lot to say about 
even specific textual provisions of the Constitution and the way those will interact with others. So um, one of my favorites, and it also comes from a series of papers that Brutus wrote between Brutus I and Brutus V, is he talks about how the, the specific provisions in Article I, like the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause in Article I, Section 8, will combine with the judicial power in Article Three to have effects on federalism. Um, and so his, he has a, a, the basic idea that what's going to happen is that Congress will have increasing um, uh, irrigation of power to it under Article I, Section 8, that it will increasingly start legislating additional things and calling this federal, um, federal uh, uh, legislative prerogatives, and that the courts, the federal courts in Article Three, will aid and abet the enterprise by allowing Congress to do so without checking it. So it's a very different view of how checks and balances will work um, with, within um, the Anti-Federalist Papers as compared to the Federalists. The, the picture that Brutus paints is one where it's not as, um, you know, the, the, the powers clashing against each other to check and to balance. It's instead the federal powers working together to the detriment um, of the states. And I, you know, I think also Professor Kuhnmiller brings up a very interesting point about to the extent that you look and you see and you think, oh, some of these anti-federalist predictions are correct, is this a problem with the Constitution itself or with the people who have been operating in power under it? And I, and I agree, I, I like the, the car metaphor. Um, I think that's an interesting way of illustrating it. But of course, the whole project of the Constitution was to build a car that doesn't get in accidents. Right. I mean, if you read the Federalist Papers, they a say, Volvo. right, exactly. Right. It's like it, it, they say, you know, I, I'm forgetting if this is 51 or 10, um, but the Federalist Papers say the, the, the proposition is that if if men were angels, we wouldn't need governments. Right. 51. Um, if men were angels, we wouldn't need governments. Right. Because we, we would just trust each other to all behave in altruistic, virtuous, um, other regarding behavior and everything would work out perfectly. And the whole reason that we need the Constitution is to channel the, the, the bad um, inclinations of, of mankind in order to try to check them and balance them and keep them in, in order. And so in some ways it is um, a, a criticism of the Constitution itself that the Anti-Federalists are making more so than the people, since I think they generally agreed that men weren't angels. Uh, Professor Baker, be interested in, in your perspective. You know, uh, Dr. Conmiller points out you have the Reconstruction Amendments that really radically altered the the uh, way our, our union works together. You also, of course, have the 17th Amendment that removed the state governments from their uh, founding era role in picking the, the U.S. senators. Is, is it, were they uh, really prescient or were they, did they just happen to be lucky? First of all, how long do I have? Nah. <laughs> uh, I like the car metaphor too because it is true that the, the Constitution is designed much like an engine. And that's one of the reasons that the NFLs didn't like it. It was too complicated for them. They wanted simple government. And we'll get to that in a minute. But one, the reason why it was designed this way is to deal with the religious wars in Europe. And the question since 1648 and the rise of the modern state was, how do you keep people from killing each other over religion? It's a big issue. And separation of powers and structure is key to this whole thing. The Anti-Federalists had the understanding, along with Hobbes, not that they were Hobbesians, but along with Hobbes, that there are only two forms of government, a confederation, which is a collection, a treaty of different sovereigns, or one sovereign. Nobody among the founders, not even Hamilton, wanted a European-type sovereign, although Judge the Parr thinks that. Anyway, 
what, what the Federalists did was to merge per Montesquieu, which the Anti-Federalists always cited, they flipped it on them, was to merge external sovereignty because they're among nations, they had to be an external sovereign. One of the problems with the Confederation, nobody knew who was sovereign. With an internal non-sovereignty, the Anti-Federalists never got this. The non-sovereignty part was that there is only the American people as sovereign. When I first heard that, I thought that, you know, that's not true, that's just a myth. No, it is true, or it was true, in that the sovereign, the people, parcel out some of their powers to their own state constitution and some to the federal constitution. But the Federalists understand that whoever, understood that whoever has power wants more of it. And the whole key was to pit power against power. That's the key. Once you ratchet that in a different way by several of the things you've mentioned, the dynamic changes. It's like going into an automobile engine and pulling a key part out, and you wonder why it doesn't work so well. Well, guess what? You didn't understand what you were doing. And there were several things that happened in this country, some of which were understood by intellectuals and they hoodwinked people, and others that the people were just stupid on. What else can you say? So on the 17th Amendment, the states gave away their power. As the Federalists stated several times, the, one of the main checks is that the states are represented in the federal government. They can block anything in the Senate. Who got rid of that? The states. Did any of them argue about the Federalists? No. They didn't know about it. You mentioned that all of these citations of the last 70 years. Guess what? At the beginning, Marshall didn't cite the Federalists. He just copied them and put them into Marbury and McCullough, etc. Why? Because they had the original public meeting in mind. They set the structure and it was so solid that it lasted for a long, long time. The Senate is key, but there's an intellectual problem. It's not just the progressives, it's what the progressives do on top of po positivism. There's a different mindset from the founding that persists until the Civil War. After the Civil War, Holmes, and if you're conservative, never cite Holmes as a conservative. He is not. It's one of the worst justices we've ever had. <laughs> so, Judge, uh, Judge Oldham, I feel like there's a lot for you to respond to there from, from uh, Professor Baker. Go for it. Um, I'm not going to touch, not touching half of that. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think it's, it's an interesting proposition about the, about the engine and how much of this is that the engine itself isn't running properly to the extent that you think it's not. Um, is it because the engine was de designed effectively or do you think it's because we've been tinkering with the motor? Um, and I think either of those are, are reasonable propositions. It was actually one of the things that y you mentioned at the beginning. I, was, I just taught a class at the University of Virginia and I had this in the final the, the paper topic prompt um, because I think it is a very interesting topic when we talk about the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists and their relevance to, to the modern debate. So I think you know, the, the biggest takeaway I would have from all of it 
is that I, I largely agree that when we're thinking about these two bodies of thought, we need to think about what each one of them has to say about a current proposition, and both of them have predictions. Whatever it is, whatever you're thinking about, whether you're thinking about an Article One power, if you want to think about Article Two and the executive power of the administrative state, there's anti-federalist and federalist debate on that too. And understand that they both of them talk about what is going to happen either with the engine that the Constitution gives us or if we start tinkering with the various pieces of the engine how is the car going to perform? And I think they both have um, originalist arguments on their side about what that meant in the, in, in the late 18th century. Um, Dr. Conmiller, uh, the anti-federalists were really concerned that the, the national government wouldn't faithfully represent local concerns, uh, that it would be corrupted by the, the aristotic, or aristocratic influences there in, in my, my, my hometown, uh, as, as, as you indicated earlier. Um, today, though, I think one could be forgiven for thinking that local politicians can often look and sound a lot like the, the politicians and, and be uh, pushing a lot of the same policies that you might see in D.C. Um, why is that? Were the anti-federalists wrong about their assumptions about virtue and, and uh, the, the geographic locus of, of government? We have another chicken and egg problem here. Um, so I think, if, if you're, for me, if I were to try to sketch the three big differences between how they thought you were going to get good government, um, this, this all ties together with your point, which is about virtue, which is they thought you, and where you started with representation, they thought you needed representation that looked like the people. So um, that really, if you held up a mirror to the people, that's who the representatives would be. Clearly, the anti-federalists wanted representatives who were better than the people, which is not crazy, because if we had a math problem to solve, it would not be wise for us as a group to take a vote. We should find whoever here has an actual math background. I'm sure there's a couple of you out there who are bright on both sides of the brain and let you take over. Um, but the anti-federalists said, no, you got to have uh, representatives whose interests are truly the same as those of the people. And to do that, you can't get the elite. You have to get some of every class. You have to get a representative amount of every class. Um, then you got to write down those bills of rights. Um, but you know, it's not true that they just thought that those would be parchment barriers, like the federalists said. They thought that all this was going to be tied together with a form of Republican virtue. Um, it really was the consensus at the day that republics only work if you have a virtuous citizenry um, to a certain extent. Certainly everyone agreed men weren't angels. Um, the, the line that Judge Oldham cited is followed up with the first goal of government or the first objective of government has to be to get government to be able to control the people and then the next thing it has to be able to do is to control itself. Um, but the point is they knew that this self-restraint, this moderation was absolutely essential to having a republic. They were a bit divided on where that was going to come from though. The Federalists thought that we could set up this engine, this self-checking machine where you would pit ambition against ambition um, and where you would create these great offices, the presidency, the, being a Supreme Court justice, um, being a senator, and that this would attract truly talented, superlative people like Washington and Madison to step forward and fill those offices and that's how we would get um, a machine where first of all you'd get the best leaders and even when you didn't they'd face off against each other instead of facing off against us. Um, 
The Anti-Federalists said, no, you got to have leaders who look like and have the same interests as you. You got to write down your rights and your limits of government. And the whole thing is going to be tied together by the virtue of the people, which won't overly be tried. So we look at our local governments today and we say, where is this local virtue? Where is this Republican virtue? Well, that model clearly doesn't work. We might as well have the professionals off in DC. The problem is we were all raised um, in a culture where ambition checks ambition. Um, we were also raised in a culture and a community that is enormously wealthy in large part thanks to um, the commercial things that we are able to do by virtue of being this powerful nation that we are. Um, the Anti-Federalists said screw being rich, let's be free. Um, and, and, and they really had this model of smaller, more modest leadership. And that sounds like pie in the sky, but right all of us dreamed of doing great things when we grew up. Um, many of us grew up with Ronald Reagan on the screen in front of us and thought, wow, wouldn't that be amazing and awesome and I want to be like that when I grow up. These things have an effect on us as a culture and the Anti-Federalists said, if you don't make a place for Caesar to rule from, you won't have a people full of people who want to be Caesars. Now, I don't know if that's true, um, but I certainly can't disprove it. And uh, it's interesting to think about who we might be as a people. How many people never step into politics because they don't want to be like that? How many good potential leaders don't move forward to be leaders because of their distaste for politics? Judge Oldham, um, the anti-federalists talked a lot about concerns about aristocracy. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and how you might see uh, elements of their concerns in, in my hometown today? Yeah, um, it, it's, it's related to what Professor Kumunler was just talking about, which is one of the biggest concerns of, of anti-federalist thought is they did not like permanent ruling classes unaccountable to the people. That's what they called an aristocracy. It obviously has European etymology. And, and that's what they had in mind when they, were when they were constantly railing against the notion of aristocracy. Cato's papers, another great anti-federalist author, um, has a ton to say about how Article Two of the Constitution, in his view, is gonna lead to this notion of aristocracy. And to modern ears, you might hear that and think, well, Obviously, we don't have an aristocracy in the United States, so that's kind of silly. But one of the questions that I've often asked is what would Cato think about some of the institutions of government that we have in Washington, D.C.? So, so Don McGahn earlier was talking a little bit about the administrative state, large swaths of which um, are permanent employees, right, who live in, in Judge McFadden's hometown. They don't, they're not accountable. They don't stand up for election, right? They don't rotate in office every four years. They have, they have career jobs. There, they, they're I'm what, starting to feel a little uncomfortable here, Judge Oldham. <laughs> um, right, and, and what, what would he say about the fact that so much law that comes out of Washington, D.C. comes from administrative agencies, right? It's, we have large and capacious statutes that are passed by Congress that largely depend on administrative enforcement, um, which comes in the form of things like rules, right? The, so notice of proposed rulemakings, as anyone who's ever picked up a federal register would know, I have long lists of, of substantive prescriptions and requirements that are coming from administrative agencies. They're not coming from Congress, right? Congress will pass a broad statute and then the agency, through notice of comment, will propose the substantive requirements that have the legal effect of the law. And if you start to think about exactly how all of that works, how, how all of it has been separated, as Professor Kuhnmiller um, um, points out, from the people, 
right? Because it's there, there's it's now there's a disintermediation between the people who vote for the representatives and the substantive requirements that then govern the people and their decisions. It you can start to understand how anti-federalist thought might apply or have something to say about the way that we've we've um, we govern ourselves. So, Professor Baker, it sounds like. Uh, the the anti-federalists were, were really spot on in, in this concern. Um, how did the federalists miss it, or, or did they at all? No, they didn't miss it. I mean, first of all, we, we mentioned, you mentioned it, that there might be a question of tinkering, question of structure, did they get it right in the people? The one thing, first of all, any structure, any institution that human beings create doesn't last. It lasts, ours has lasted a long time. But changes in technology are critical to changes in governmental structure. And in my view, the main problem in terms of structure is that when you read Madison, in particular in Publius, about what is going to make it possible to have a large republic when the anti-federalists thought you could only have small republics, was that you would spread people out across a large territory and they wouldn't be able to communicate well with each other. And that was true back 200 years ago plus. And instead their representatives would come to Washington and they would bring the interest of their constituents there. In many ways, especially in the House, but also in the Senate, they were designed to be mediators between the federal government and the state government. And at its best, what we had in, among the founders, both Federalist and Anti-Federalist, was both sides. That is, if the Anti-Federalists had had their way, we might be Switzerland. And Jefferson is very popular in Switzerland. Mm. But that's a small country and it's a different type of country. Uh, the the Anti-Federalist view is these should be like us, the representatives. But it's also everyone in our community should be like us. And I love the South, but in the South, certainly before desegregation, if you were black, if you were a Jew, or if you were a Catholic, you were in trouble. You weren't part of the community. And there is a notion among the anti-federalists that the Republic has to be small and we have to be alike. And it's carried over into Jefferson's agrarianism. And in this, it's good to have independent farmers. I agree with that. But why have independent farmers? Well, it's difficult to get up in the morning and milk the cows if, and carouse at night. You can't do both. You, you, you have to work hard. And they're equal. They're equally poor, okay? <laughs> independent farmers don't make a lot of money. That was one view of how you maintain the republic, how you maintain virtue not necessarily religiously based virtue, although that was Washington's view as expressed in his farewell address written by Hamilton, but that at least you have civic virtue. <laughs> that is that they're honest, they're hardworking, they're friendly with their neighbors. So if you're in trouble in a small town, people will help you. What's the downside? If you're really bright in a small town, you may be kind of lonely. You may want to leave for other parts. If you're different, that's what the, anti, what the Federalists were concerned about in terms of what the anti-Federalist view was. In my view, but for the Federalist, 
we would be a third world democracy. Judge Oldham, uh, love to hear your response to suggestion that the, the anti-federalists were kind of a, a representing the, the landed interests of the South. Not just the South, this is all over the country in rural areas. Well, they, there was definitely a different view. I think both of you have, have pointed this out, that there was definitely a different view of what is the role of government um, in the anti-federalist view and the federalist view. Um, it is absolutely true that one of the things that the federalists were most concerned about was having some strong central government that would be able to both command prestige in international affairs and to defend the young, then nascent United States from foreign invasion or influence or what have you. And you know, obviously Shays' Rebellion was fresh in the mind of those um, in Philadelphia. And so there was, a, there was definitely a, a desire on the, the federalist side of the debate to have a strong national government and also, I think as Professor Kuhnmiller pointed out, that the people in that strong centralized government that could, that could have that prestige and command that influence on the international stage would also be elite and, and separated from the people in order to do things that, the, that they and their wise judgment might understand to be the best course for the nation that may not be quite so popular. It's the whole reason we have the upper, the upper body of the legislature and the Senate was to, in, with the longer terms, the six-year terms, was to put some space between electoral accountability and, um, and, 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 um, and the people, right? Or to put the representatives and the people at some, some space so that they could do what was wise and perhaps not politi politically expedient. Whereas it's also true that the anti-federalist view um, was that even the two-year terms in the House of Representatives too were too long, right? They thought that was crazy and way too, and for anyone who knows anything about how Washington, D.C. works, folks will often say on the Hill that, that, that folks in the, in the House of Representatives are constantly campaigning, that it's just yeah. one campaign cycle after another, it never actually stops. But the anti-federalist view is that that was a good thing, right? They wanted that constant feedback largely because one of the things that they were nervous about is that if you separate geographically the power from the people and those who represent them, that it creates a, um, an impersonality that makes it more difficult for the representatives to understand what the people want and for the people to know what the representatives are doing. And they thought that was a serious problem um, and one that, that was gonna um, create serious anti-democratic consequences. Uh, Dr. Kahnmiller, uh, one of the things uh, Dr. Baker mentioned was uh, the importance of travel in, in how we uh, govern our country. I was, I was thinking about today, you know, we've got a uh, hundred senators sitting there in, uh, in, in DC by this evening, half of them will probably be out in Iowa, right? I mean, that's something that never would have happened and couldn't have really been conceived of back in the founding. Be interested from a historical perspective how travel and communication uh, has played a part in the, the fruition of the anti-federalist concerns or, or maybe changed what the federalists might have had in mind? I mean, when I think about the technology and the technological difference between now and then, um, you know, it, if I think back to 1789, I think, gosh, could, could we have just been a little clearer about some of those provisions? Um, I'm not necessarily an anti-federalist, though I think they have some excellent points. Um, 
But if we had that debate again today, I sure as heck would be a Federalist, not an Anti-Federalist. And the reason why is because I think the Anti-Federalists would be on board with plebiscite clicker voting for everyone, <laughs> and that's terrifying. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Anti-Federalists you know, really have like this model of the ancient direct democracy where um, everyone gets together in the agora in the little Greek town and votes. They know they can't have that statewide, so they're willing to have representation, um, but they want representation to be as close to dem direct democracy as possible. It's 1789, so it doesn't look much like direct democracy. It looks more like direct democracy than what the Federalists want, um, but it doesn't scare me nearly as much as what they would want with the technology we have today is. And and and. I suppose if the Federalists were here thinking through our technology, um, they would be trying to put up more barriers. I mean, the, the press does, and the omnipresence of the press, I mean, we heard that earlier today, the omnipresence of the press in the um, Senate confirmation hearings has changed their nature. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, Judge Oldham, one of the things we talked about earlier was uh, the aristocracy and the concerns of uh, aristocratic impulses in um, the, the constitutional system of government. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, in his Democracy in America, he says that, that lawyers are really the aristocracy of the country, and, and us judges are, I suppose, the, the upper crust of the aristocracy, perhaps the, the dukes and duchesses. Um, what, what was the anti-federalist conception of the role of the judiciary, and what fears did they harbor about the Article Three conception of a judiciary in the Constitution. Yeah, this this is a wonderful question, which we could do a whole you know hour panel on 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 just this. So so we're all fond um, in, in at Federal Society events of quoting um, Federalist seventy eight, right? That the 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 Article Three and the judiciary, the judicial branch, will be the least dangerous branch because it has neither force nor will, but merely judgment. Um, and that Federalist paper, written by Hamilton. Um, had, is a response to a series of anti-federalist essays that talked about what was going to happen when we give um, federal judges life tenure and salary protection um, like Article Three does. And there's a, a huge debate, I think, between and, and that goes to on, on several different axes, and they, they sometimes overlap or intersect, but sometimes they're just completely divergent. So for example, there's a debate between the anti-federalists and the federalists about just the nature of what the federal judicial power is. Is it more like common law power that courts of general jurisdiction in the states wielded, or is it something more limited? Um, what is going to be the role of precedent in judicial decision making? You know, um, Hamilton says that federal judges will be strictly down, bound down by precedent. The anti-federalists worry that instead the federal judiciary will be governed by, quote, the spirit of the law and that they will feel free because of their protections to, to um, what, what did Don McGann, uh, grow in office, is, um, to, to quote um, Don McGahn from the last panel. Um, and so I, there's, a, there's a notion of, of that judicial power, but then there's also a way, they, they also debate exactly what is going to be the, like, the end, right? what is gonna be the goal of the federal judicial power. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that many of the anti-federalists who criticized Article Three and were worried about the way Article Three was gonna operate in, in the proposed constitution, worried that the goal of the federal judicial power would be the increase of federal power. 
power, right, the, of, or centralizing additional power in the federal judiciary uh, to the great detriment of the states. And they would point to things in particular like the Supremacy Clause, right? The Supremacy Clause specifically says that federal law will be binding on states the, the, and, and state courts, um, the law of the state notwithstanding. And I think that they would point to all of these things to say this is a serious power to give to, a, by definition or by design, an, an unaccountable branch um, without standards articulated in Article 3 for how to wield it um, in a way, and then combine it with Article um, 6 and what is it going to do um, to states and to state power. I think that was the principal anti-federalist concern. Professor Baker? The problem in any federal system is enforcement of federal power. It simply is. And in the convention, the choice was the military or the courts. That's the choice. What, what other choice have you got? If you read Federalist 15 and you talk about the prescience of the Anti-Federalists, I taught in France for 11 years. I was there when they started the European Union. They asked me what I think. I kept telling them it's not going to last. Why is it not going to last? It's a confederation. Hamilton destroys the idea that a confederation will last. He says they're useful for certain things, but they are not political bodies. There's a reason why Aristotle treats confederations where they belong, international law. They're not political entities. There was this very naive notion on the part of the anti-federalists that we could all just be happy together and we wouldn't interfere state by state. Well, the reality was before the convention, they were. Different states were taking advantage of the others. They had complete sovereignty and they were using it against one another. The anti-federalist had a very idealistic understanding of human nature. That's good if you recognize that rarely do we reach it. The federalists were much more realistic and they, they were not cynical. They said, this is what you have to do if you're going to govern in a way that will lead to justice. It's all about justice. But you can't just say, we're for a just order. Why? Because each political group is going to see their view as the just order. The key teaching is in Federalist 10 about factions. The anti-Federalists were all for one common faction where we're all alike. And that's why many of them thought, well, we can't all live together. That is, the people in the South and people in Massachusetts were saying, how can we get along? We're so different. Nothing's much changed except communication. And what the Federalists said, look, we can get along and live together in a way if what the federal government does is to tend to four things, national defense, foreign relations, foreign commerce, domestic commerce. Where it goes off the rails is commerce. Why? Judge, don't take offense. The Justice Department, since the early 20th century, would say, why do we have to worry about jurisdiction? We're out to get the bad guys. No, we don't have a national police power. De facto, we do have a national police power. That is more than anything else. And when you, when you unite it with drones, you will have a completely centralized government, certainly if the Democrats get elected. <laughs> um, 
Dr. Uh, Kahn-Miller, I'd love to hear your perspective on on how things have, have changed with the, the federal judiciary. Of course, um, you know, Federal 78 said that Article 3 was going to be the least dangerous branch, that you had nothing to worry about. And, you know, I tell me if you disagree, but you think of, you know, John Jay, our first Chief Justice, I think he left the court after a few years, kind of got bored and wanted to run go do governor. something more important. Yeah, um, yes, yeah, uh, to, to run, uh, run for office. Um, is, when, when did it change? Why did it change? Do you agree? Is it, it was it the, the, the uh, Justice Department and this, this uh, broad use of uh, criminal uh, jurisdiction? Uh, you've also thought a lot about virtue. I wonder if there was some idea about judges uh, having some sort of superior virtue that would keep them within their lanes or, or what, what happened? So this might actually be an area where Tocqueville is a little bit more helpful than um, the anti-federalists. Uh, and, and one thing I think that the anti-federalists were wrong about that I can't imagine many attorneys would disagree with is they, they thought, well, you know, we can enact this constitution, but why the heck do we need a federal judiciary? Can't our state courts just apply this? And obviously we'd have 50 different sets of results. I, I, I can't imagine how that would function. Um, so there's there they're there on on the judiciary i think and i think history's not necessarily um been kind to them on that point um i, I think though you know not to say that their federal judiciary isn't dangerous and perhaps i'm overly biased um towards the the judiciary after all i fell in love with the constitution and then decided to grow up and become an attorney but um i i, I think that broadly understood the judiciary and, and the bar, I think we're the ones that toe the line the best. Because after all, Congress puts us in a pretty tight spot when they write laws that are constantly pushing the, the boundaries. Um, but I think the reason why that spot is always so tight comes back to one of these macro questions um, between the anti-federalist federalist debate, and that's the complexity versus the simplicity. So one of the anti-federalist kind of just things they harped on over and over again is if you're going to have a Republican government, you've got to have a government that's relatively simple. Because folks, who's the prince? Everybody's the prince. Everybody can't go to Harvard. You've got to have a form of government that common Joe can wrap his head around. Um, and what the judiciary does, what the bar does, it, it's complex. It has to be complex. Um, and the public right now, in part because of our education, but in part because of training from the political branches, they don't believe that what the judiciary does is not political. They do not believe that it is not a political branch of government. Um, and so the pressure from them to implement policy as a judiciary is unrelenting. And I think that goes back to that simplicity um, uh, complexity point is, is it's just really complex and hard to understand. So then you put the judiciary in as one of the three major branches of the government and uh, yeah, we probably function better than the military would, but uh, the, that, there's a misfit with a Republican government there. Maybe better than any other alternative, but it's, it's always a struggle. Um, but to the virtue point, I mean, Tocqueville said, who are lawyers in a common law system? They are people who are trained to love law and order. They are people who are trained to love what is old. They are people who are trained to revere and implement what is old. Um, in a sense, that has nothing to do with Democrats and Republicans. That makes us conservative and aristocratic by nature vis-a-vis -vis the people as a whole, um, which makes us a bit of a check on the system, which 
to your point, would make us a good thing for protecting rights of minorities. Um, all right, we could keep going on. Um, I'd love to uh, welcome any questions from the audience at this point. We've got a couple microphones here. Um, let me just remind you that um, uh, your, your uh, colleagues in the audience are, he are here to hear from the panelists and that a question has a question mark at the end. <laughs> Sir. Uh, I'll try, it's sort of a short comment and I want to, to hear the panelists' response. Uh, it's for all the panelists, but specifically for Judge o o Oldham, uh, is that you said in response to uh, the argument that the anti-federalists lost, just look at the Bill of Rights. And so here, here's my short comment, and I'd like to hear your response, is that one conventional argument is that Madison is pushing the Bill of Rights on the first Congress, and they keep putting it off and putting it off uh, he keeps pushing it. I think they were in the middle of a debate on tariffs and trade, and they didn't want to be bothered with the Bill of Rights. And so it was, why is Madison pushing this, that he, um, you know, he called it a parchment barrier, barrier, but did he suddenly have a come to Jesus moment? And the, the argument is that two states had petitioned Congress for a convention, and he wants to take the wind out, out of their sails uh, by getting through a Bill of Rights. And uh, what he does is uh, go, he goes through all the proposals and picks out those that are least objectionable uh, to the Federalists, and then uh, it's passed, and what we really have is not 10 amendments, uh, but 10 things that don't make any changes in the Constitution and merely make explicit was what was already implicit in the original Constitution, and that the Bill of Rights is really about structure. I'm thinking Akilah Mars scholarship. And so my question is, um, is that analysis off, um, or where would it be off, or how would you respond to that? And this is for any of the panelists. So I think in it's not necessarily off. It may be incomplete in some areas. I mean, it's obviously a difficult concept to get into a into a, a sixty second question. So I think it's a fair fair point. Um, one thing to remember, of course, is that it, it wasn't like Madison just started pressing it in Congress in response to the two petitions from the states. This had in the ratification process between 1787 and 1789. There were several states led by Massachusetts, which was the first one, that included amendments to the Constitution in their ratification instruments. They're, in fact, one of the big anti-federalist arguments, Federal Farmer, who is one of the most famous of the anti-federalists, his principal argument was that the Constitution should be amended before ratified, right? So he, he actually didn't have a ton of problem with the Constitution. He just wanted the amendments included in it before the ratification. And then in the process, the political economy of the day, where they, where the ratification debates were ongoing and the, the political debate was shifting, because obviously if you're the fifth state to ratify, you have a very different incentive structure, a very different argument than the first state, and a very different one than the ninth state, right? The ninth state to ratify is the one that makes the document operative, and that is a huge, that's a, that's a huge distinction in what is going on in the ratification conventions based on where you are in line. Massachusetts sort of in the middle, and they were the ones that started this proposition of offering the amendments. And so there was a very real credible threat of a, of a second constitutional convention, com in addition to the fact that the Federalists had beaten off this idea of the, of the amendments prior to ratification by promising to have the Bill of Rights to the Anti-Federalists, right? So that's how people like Federal Farmer, who we generally think is somebody like Melanchthon Smith, 
came to actually support the Constitution in the New York ratification debate on the bargain that I'm going to get my Bill of Rights. So I'm not sure it necessarily takes away from the proposition that it was something driven by anti-federalist sentiment in Massachusetts, New York, Virginia, and elsewhere. Dr. Baker? Yeah, and we have to understand that what the anti-federalists were talking about in terms of a Bill of Rights was not a libertarian view. These are basically, except for the First Amendment and Third Amendment, it's all about common law rights. The key rights, the key right is the Tenth Amendment, and that's where they got it. They got the provision from the Articles of Confederation in terms of powers. And conservatives often cite the Tenth Amendment. Tenth Amendment adds nothing to the structure of the Constitution. What the anti-federalists who really understood the power game, they wanted the provision in the Articles of Confederation to turn it back into a confederation. Sir. Yeah, I'm going to direct this to Professor Baker, and that's mostly because I saw him taking a sip of water during the last question. Um, both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists understood that the navigable waters of the United States were waters capable of being used as means of interstate and international commerce. What do you think that the Anti-Federalists or the Federalists would think about a redefinition of that term to include any water which may eventually run into the navigable waters of the United States? And are you, in fact, holding navigable waters of the United States in your hand? Look, I, I agree with you, okay? It's ridiculous. That's no fun. Somebody has to disagree. <laughs> Fortunately, President... <laughs> When President Trump was elected, John Fund told me there's only two things he cares about. One is trade, and two is the EPA because they zapped him for some puddle on a driveway he had. Well, we've got Matt Leopold, uh, from uh, general counsel from the EPA here tomorrow, so <laughs> make sure to take that up with him. Um, on, on that uh, point, though, about uh, commerce, uh, Dr. Kunmiller, as, as I read the Anti-Federalists, there's almost nothing, um, no pushback to the, the Commerce Clause in the Constitution, which is, is kind of surprising to me, given, as Dr. Baker shows, that's really been the, the, uh, the, the entryway that the, 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 uh, the camel has gotten under the tent. What do you make of that? I'm not quite sure what to make of that because obviously from our point in history and after the education you get in law school, that's the first thing you see. Um, they, they, they definitely saw taxing and they saw the necessary and proper clause. They saw the necessary and proper clause a lot. Um, perhaps they didn't ignore, pay too much attention to it because they were really into the general welfare clause and how that could be construed very broadly. Um, and that hasn't been used very much that way, which leads the Commerce Clause to being um, more important. And I, so I guess just kind of to take the question a slightly different way, I think that when they thought about what this Constitution would do for commerce, they, you know, it, it, it was not that they were a bunch of country bumpkins, but uh, being the wealthiest country in the land was not their number one priority. And so all the things that the Commerce Clause um, and our kind of commercial powerhouseness as a nation has done for us was not something that they saw as an enticement. But you're right, it, it, it shows up every once in a while in a series. It's just very rarely something they focus on. Dr. Baker. Look, Marshall uh, simply, in the Gibbons case, read the text to regulate 
commerce among the states, okay? How, my, how many times do lawyers actually use that term? No, they use the term interstate commerce. There's no such term in the Constitution. It's the Interstate Commerce Commission at the end of the 19th century that comes up. So I make this point in many contexts, not just here. Conservatives lose the argument over and over and over again by accepting terminology without thinking about it. You gotta challenge terminology. And if you wanna be an originalist on commerce, the Commerce Clause, you gotta go back to, to Gibbons. You gotta follow what Thomas says, not what other people say in terms of what the commerce is. And we still would have plenty of, of ability of the federal government to regulate commerce. The anti-federalists, I, I don't think they ever made this argument, but all you have to do is read the text of the Commerce Clause where it talks about with foreign nations, with Indian tribes, but among the states, okay? Take the word among and add it to foreign nations. If we said Congress has power to regulate commerce among foreign nations, wow. That would mean it was superior. Well, yeah, that's what the text means. On commerce matters, it is superior, but it is restricted in the way that Marshall laid out. Unfortunately, he didn't get enough commerce cases to lay it out. Um, Judge Oldham, we're almost out of time here. I think um, we're, we're uh, all that's standing between our, our, our friends and cocktails. Um, any, uh, on that point, any, any final thoughts that you'd like, uh, if there's one thing we should take away from the idea of the, the anti-federalists and um, what they have to offer today, what, what would you say? I think my principal takeaway is that you should read at least a few of them. Um, you need to understand a little bit about what they say, pre precisely so you can understand the Federalist Papers and what was going on in 1789 a little bit better. If you've never read Brutus, pick one. If you've never read Cato, pick one. If you've never read Federal Farmer, Old Whig, Cincinnatus, just pick one. And if you read three or four of them, um, and if that's the only thing that comes out of this panel, it will be a panel well served and you will be a better lawyer, advocate, judge, um, or educated American when it comes to the original public meaning of the document. Folks, please join me in thanking our panel.